0: God, I just want to lift up this study to you and I pray that you would be glorified in it because there's nothing that I could ever say that would be in any way profound or special or noteworthy or memorable. But God, your word changes lives. Your word digs at the very core of what we're going on, transforms our worldview and causes us to draw nearer to you, to live more like you. God, I pray that as we open your word, I pray that it would speak deeply to us and that you be glorified in it. In your precious son's name, we pray, amen. Amen. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 3, before we take a look at verse 1, um, just a reminder of kind of what's going on in 1 Samuel. As you hopefully well remember, 1 Samuel is the book of leadership. First Samuel is the book of leadership, and as we study the book of First Samuel, we're going to be looking at three main characters. That's Samuel, who consequently the book is named after, uh, because the book begins with his birth and early life. Also, the life of David and the life of Saul, not in that order. <laughs> um, as we study, though, Samuel, as you all remember, Samuel is a man after God's word. He's a man after God's word. Saul is a man after God's blessing, a very selfish character. David, a man after God's own heart, a very faithful man. Well, now we're looking at the life of Samuel, a man after God's word. Samuel was, uh, a prophet, uh, in the land of Israel. And he was also actually most consider him to be the last judge of Israel as well. Uh, Samuel's life kind of happens right at the end of the book of Judges. So where Judges kind of leaves off, 1 Samuel kind of picks up. And as you remember, Ruth, which we studied before 1 Samuel, kind of happens during the period of the Judges. And so 1 Samuel takes place, as you well remember, during a time of real, kind of a, a bad time for Israel. The time of the Judges was not exactly a high point for the children of Israel. It was a time of of continual perpetual rebellion against God. You remember the book of Judges was the book of cycles, right? Because we saw time and time again, the children of Israel uh, be blessed by God and repay that blessing with disobedience, with idolatry. Well, as a result, God would respond with punishment. The children of Israel would cry out to God. He would hear them. He'd answer them. He would save them by sending an imperfect judge to kind of come in and save Israel to uh, get them back on track, and then as a result, uh, they, would, they would then repay that blessing with disobedience and idolatry again, and, and the entire book of Judges is filled with these cycles. Well, First Samuel sort of picks up where that left off, and we're now in literally probably the lowest place uh, that Israel has ever been uh, since Egypt. This is a really tough time. And Israel is really looking all over the place, really desperate for a leader. Leadership is so important. That's, that's why this book, for Samuel, is so important to us as Christians, because leadership is so important in our lives as human beings. Leadership and, and leadership structures have always been and always will be. Wherever there's community, wherever there's civilization, leadership must be there. Leadership must be there. Anarchy never works, right? People sometimes chat, chant and cry out for anarchy, uh, but that never ends up working. And what ends up rising out of anarchy is utter chaos. And then one man kind of stands up to fix the chaos, and that becomes a dictator. And anarchy always leads to to dictatorship. Uh, but this isn't a, a social studies lesson. But leadership is so important, and that's the state that Israel's in right now. They're looking around for a leader, someone to, someone to take them out of these dark, dark times. Well, you have Eli, who's the high priest at the time, although he seems to be fairly incompetent. Why? Well, his sons Hophni and Phinehas, as we learned last week, uh, were sleeping with people in the doorway of the tabernacle. You know, the people that were coming to sacrifice, that were coming to to make their offering to God, not only were they stealing God's sacrifice, but they were sleeping with women uh, in church, so to speak. Some scholars tend to think that they could have even actually have created a prostitution ring uh, right there um, at the tabernacle. These were worthless men, the Bible calls them. And Eli, their dad, the high priest at the time, was oblivious at some point, uh, but was finally made aware of his son's heinous sin and did nothing to stop them. Did nothing to stop them. So you have wicked men and an incompetent man sort of running Israel at this time, and God's not happy about it. And so we saw there at the end of chapter 2, Uh, God kind of lays out this this curse on the house of Eli. Why? Because he was a terrible leader and, and here's Israel in this leadership crisis, so to speak, looking for someone to follow and here's Eli setting a terrible example with complacency and his two sons who are next in line who, if they took over, God only knows what would happen to Israel. But then, there's Samuel. Then there's Samuel. As you remember from a couple weeks ago, the name Samuel means asked. Asked. Why? Because Hannah asked God for a son, and, and that's exactly what he gave her. He gave her Samuel. But much more deeper than that, the children of Israel were really, uh, even without knowing it, asking for it and desperately needing a leader, someone to sort of pull them out of the darkness. And so here in the midst of these wicked, wicked people, Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, the complacent and incompetent high priest, we have this young man, Samuel, who I want to highlight a couple of verses in chapter 2 before we get into chapter 3 that sort of give us a a good background on Samuel in the midst of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and and the real tragedy that was going on with them. In chapter 2, verse 11 we see first kind of mention of Samuel objectively by the narrator. It says there in verse 11 that the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. The boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So the picture here is this little boy who's ministering to God in some way. We don't know exactly how because actually... Samuel would have been unfit for priestly service because he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He wasn't a Levite. Uh, And so he couldn't really be the high priest. Um, But here he is ministering to the Lord anyway in the presence of God, uh, right there with Eli, the priest, kind of watching over him. You have Eli ministering to the Lord as a young boy, which is always so sweet. I don't know if you've ever, any of you who work in children's ministry, if you've ever seen uh, little kids praising God, it has to be like the cutest, sweetest thing in the world. Nothing could be more uh, cute than seeing a little kid uh, sing praise songs. It's just the cutest thing. And that's sort of what we see Samuel, this little boy, ministering to the Lord in whatever little way he could as a, as a tiny child, ministering to the Lord there in the presence of Eli the priest. But then we see in verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. So we have a little change. We have a little change here. Now, rather than ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. In verse 18 we see Samuel ministering before the Lord clothed in a linen ephod. In other words, wearing sort of the the uniform that a priest would wear. So now he's gone from being just a little boy to maybe a, a an older child, but now he's actually ministering before the Lord. He's got the the priestly garments on. He's actually doing work in the temple and or tabernacle, rather, pardon me. And probably picking up the slack of Hophni and Phineas, Picking up the slack of Hophni and Phineas, these worthless men who did not know God. Now we see uh, Samuel really ministering uh, before God. And notice here, Eli's no longer a part of the picture in verse 18. We see at the end of verse 21... And the young man, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. Or a little literal translation of that is that Samuel grew with the Lord. In other words, now he's not just a little kid sort of ministering to God in the presence of Eli the priest. Now he's ministering before the Lord, picking up the slack of these worthless men as an older child ministering before the Lord. Now he's and a young man probably around 14 15 years old and now you see he's not just ministering before the lord but he's growing closer to god he's growing closer to god in in a in a real relational way he's not just serving He's not just ministering as some form of duty because his mom kind of signed him up for the gig before he was even conceived, but now he, his heart's really in it. He's really growing closer to the Lord. I love seeing that uh, right there in the midst of uh, Hophni and Phineas kind of fooling around and being idiots. We see Samuel, this, this young man, growing closer to the Lord, unstained uh, by the by the actions of of those around him. You know, I imagine that Eli, uh, the priest, and we'll see later on in the chapter, Eli calls Samuel my son. I imagine that Eli sort of adopted uh, Samuel and he was seen as one of the kids, you know. Hannah, his mother, has given him, dedicated him to the Lord and he has spent his entire life with Eli and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And I imagine that he grew up kind of seeing Hophni and Phinehas as older brothers. But here we have Samuel being unstained by their actions, growing with the Lord. Jump down to verse 26. And now we see Samuel, the young man, continued to grow in both stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. Now we have Samuel getting a little bit older. He's growing up a little bit more. Now maybe he's around 18. And not only is he growing in favor with the Lord, not only is he growing closer to him, not only is he picking up the slack of his older quote unquote brothers, Hophni and Phinehas, not only is he just kind of ministering to the Lord, praising him, blessing him, but now he's growing in favor with God and in favor with man. He's becoming well-respected there in Shiloh and around the tabernacle. I imagine that the other Levites, or that the Levites, pardon me, kind of are starting to look up to this very godly young man, Samuel. He's growing up close to the Lord. He's growing up uh, in the midst of all of this crisis, really, this leadership crisis. He's growing up as the young man that Israel is asking for. The entire nation is really unspokenly crying out for a leader. And Samuel is growing up. Samuel asked, is growing up as the leader that they would ask for. We see, though, in chapter 3, verse 1, just how dark these times were. Now, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. Notice in in verse 1 of chapter 3, it no longer... Uh, describes Eli as the priest. You remember back in chapter 2, verse 11, that the boy ministered in the presence of Eli, the priest. And when we see Eli for the first time, when Hannah comes to pray, he's referred to as the priest. But now he's just plain old Eli. Why? Because he sucks at his job. Because he sucks at his job. And God's no longer recognizing him as a leader over Israel. He's no longer recognizing him even now. And the word of the Lord, there at the end of verse 1, was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. This is how dark the times are for the children of Israel. The word of the Lord was rare. Now, this is something that we easily take for granted. Why? Because we have God's written word in the Bible God doesn't speak to us today uh, through prophets anymore, uh, but he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the canon of scripture, the Bible. We don't have an understanding, we don't have a grasp for an existence where the word of God is rare. In fact, in your life, probably, the word of God is abounding, it's plentiful. You go to church on Sunday mornings, Chances are many of you go to a midweek service. You come here on Tuesday nights. You listen to K-Wave on your car or podcasts in your, in your ears. Hopefully, like I said, every single morning you're waking up, you're spending time in God's Word. Listen, chances are in your life, even if you're not reading yourself daily, the Word of the Lord is plentiful in your life. And it's something that we easily take for granted. But here now... In Israel, the word of the Lord was rare. He had all but abandoned his people. Why? Because they had time and time and time and time again abandoned him and sought after what was in their own heart. They wanted nothing to do with God, and so God remained silent. They turned their back on him and worshiped other gods. And so God just kind of sat back and said, all right, go for it. If that's what you want, fine. I'm just going to sit here silently. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1, where we see men uh, who are perverting and twisting truths about God, chasing after what, whatever was in their heart, and so what does God do? We read in Romans chapter 1 that God gives them over to their, the desires of their heart. Gives them over to the lusts of their heart. That's kind of what's happening here in Israel. We're in a serious crisis. Serious crisis for the children of Israel. The word of the Lord was rare. It was very rare for them to ever hear from God. It was very rare for Him to ever want to speak to them because... It was rare that they ever wanted anything to do with him. Nevertheless, the word of the Lord was rare, and there was no frequent vision. Verse 2, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was laying down in his own place. It's interesting. We already know that Eli is a very, very old man. We already know that. That's already been told to us in uh, chapter 2. But it's especially pointed out here that Eli's eyesight had begun to grow dim. I don't believe that this is pointed out on accident or just because, uh, because God doesn't waste a word in Scripture. And I think that this is pointed out, the the author of 1 Samuel pointed this out in order to sort of show uh, that not only was there no vision in the land of Israel, but there was no vision for Eli as well. He was not only going blind physically, but he was blind spiritually. He'd watched his sons committing atrocities in the tabernacle, in church, so to speak, and turned a blind eye. And now we see him blind to God's word altogether. The word of the Lord was rare. There was hardly any vision. And Eli, the priest, who's supposed to be the leader of Israel, who's supposed to receive revelation from God and give it to the children of Israel, who's supposed to atone for their sin, who's supposed to intercede between them and God, Eli, the high priest, is blind, not only physically, but spiritually. Eli, the priest, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was laying down in his own place. It's important, again, as we're studying leadership in the book of 1 Samuel to point out about Eli, who's supposed to be this great leader, what's going on in his life. And the greatest way that we can do that is by juxtaposing or putting it against Samuel. The great thing is we don't have to do that, though, because the writer of First Samuel already did it for us. In verse uh, 4, nope, sorry, verse 3, <laughs> The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was laying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So here we have these two men. We have Eli, the blind high priest, who wasn't just blind physically, but spiritually, morally blind. And he's laying down in his own place. Now, that's not so bad, laying down in bed. I mean, there's nothing really wrong with that. And as we see, or as we're going to see, it's nighttime, okay? So there's nothing wrong with the fact that Eli's laying down in bed. But let's compare that with where Samuel's at. So we sort of have a snapshot of Eli, the high priest. Now we take a look at Samuel. It says that the the, lamp of the the lamp of God pardon me, had not yet gone out. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. This lamp was supposed to burn in the tabernacle from evening until morning, every single day, from evening until morning. And so to say that the lamp of God had not yet gone out is just to say that it's nighttime. But I think that so much more is being said here. Again, I don't believe that a single word of Scripture is wasted. It would have been much easier for the writer to simply say it was nighttime. But he goes out of his way to say that the lamp of God had not yet gone out. It had not yet gone out. As if to say there was still yet a little glimmer of hope left in Israel. God had not yet abandoned his people. Things seemed terrible for the children of Israel from a leadership standpoint, but all hope was not lost. Why? Because Samuel was laying in the tabernacle where the ark of God was. Samuel was laying in the tabernacle. We have Eli. It's nighttime, and so he's off in bed. We have Samuel. He's not laying in bed. He's falling asleep literally in the presence of God. He's morning and nighttime drawing nearer and nearer to him. Samuel was laying down in the tabernacle right next to the ark, while Eli was thrown in the towel, so to speak, laying down in bed. What a stark contrast we have. And it's important for me to point out this that as leaders, as leaders, which I've already talked about, that every single one of you, no matter what road you take in life, will have some form of leadership at some point in your life. Whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in your family, whether it's on a team, uh, or whether it's in the church, every single one of you will have some form of leadership at some point in your life. And as leaders, as Christian leaders, it's so important for us that when everyone else has sort of gone to bed, that we're drawing near to God that we are ever getting closer to him, that we are ever in his presence. If you're going to be a godly leader, if you're going to be a man or a woman who leads rightly, you need to be always spending time with, drawing near, living in the presence of God. As Brother Lawrence would put it, a, a man who lived many, many years ago, you need to be practicing the presence of God practicing the presence of God. You see, you're going to spend eternity in His presence, and so you might as well start practicing being in His presence now. How does that work? How does that practically work by by being in God's presence, by practicing His presence? Well, it's constantly, continually throughout your day, no matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing, being near God, spending time with Him, talking with Him, communing with Him. When you're sort of walking down the street just talking to God. When you've got something going on at work that bugs you, just kind of going to him with it. When you're washing the dishes, spending time with the Lord. God, why don't you come on this car ride with me? I've got a long drive to make. God, won't won't you just kind of come and, and chat with me, hang out with me on this car ride? I'd love your company. Here we have Eli in bed and Samuel practicing the presence of the Lord. He is there asleep in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Verse 4. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went to lie down. Verse 6. And the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So we have Samuel, who's a little ignorant of God's word. Understand, he'd never experienced God's word. He'd never had God speak to him. He had never been called out to by God. And so he's a little ignorant, and he hears God calling him, and he runs into Eli's room, and he says, Hey, Eli, you need anything? You called me. And Eli doesn't even get up. He just kind of rolls over. Go back to sleep. I ain't call you. You're crazy. Samuel, obedient, but probably a little confused, little perplexed, uh, just kind of finds his way back and lays back down, and he's called again, Samuel. So he jumps up and runs back into to Eli's room. Eli, you called me, you need anything? I didn't call you, my son, go lie down. Understand, Samuel had not yet known the voice of the Lord. So many people tell me uh, that, that, you know, well, God doesn't really speak to me. God doesn't really speak to me. My answer for that is, if you're here today and, and you really feel that way, that God doesn't really speak to you, um, I would put back to you that you don't really listen to God. God's not mute, okay? He, he It's not that he, he can't talk. It's not that his mouth, there's like duct tape over his mouth. Uh, it's not like he's wrestling with Jesus or something, and Jesus is like, got his hand over his mouth, okay? There, God's not silent, okay? God is not silent. And so, if you don't hear from God, it's because you don't listen. You, you don't yet know his voice. You don't know his voice. When I first heard this, um, it kind of blew me away, and I was like, wow, this is awesome. Okay, so, so God really does speak. Um, he's not quiet. And when I pray, it's, it shouldn't just be me talking at God as if I'm leaving a message on his answering machine, right? Uh, this is, it was totally crazy to me. And so I went home, and, uh, and I sort of laid uh, flat on my floor in my bedroom and, and cried out to God to speak to me. And, uh, and he didn't. And so I went to bed and the next day I, you know, I got down on my knees and I cried out to God to speak to me and he didn't. And uh, the next day, you know, I went out on my rooftop and, uh, and I was standing out on my roof and I was crying out to God to speak to me. And he didn't. And this went on for quite a while where I was just crying out to God to speak to me and he, and he never really did. And uh, and I remember one time I was I was out on uh, I was out on the rooftop and I have a flat roof and I was laying down and there was this massive windstorm going on and it was just crazy crazy windy and I'm out laying down and it's just the winds blowing all around me and I'm like God I mean is that you is are is the wind you? And I'm looking up and I'm seeing stars. I'm like, is that you? I'm like, God, what's you? I, I just, I want you to speak to me. I just want something. I want to see you. I want to experience you. I just, I want to hear you. Just something. And just deep down it, I, I couldn't explain to you what kind of sensation it was. Um, if I tried, I couldn't really put it into words, but God spoke to me and said, be still. Two words God spoke, be still. And uh, let me tell you, it was an incredibly frustrating thing to hear. I've been crying out to you for a long time to speak to me and all you have to say is be still. And for the next year, not joking, for the next year, crying out to God to speak to me, speak to me, speak to me. And it was always just Be still. That was the only thing he ever said. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I'm God. Be still. God, I just want you to speak to me, okay? Be still. God, just say something, anything. Please talk to me. Be still. God, I want to experience you. Be still. And then finally, after a year, I got the hint that I need to start learning to be still. And so finally one night, after hearing that yet again, be still, I just prayed, Lord, teach me to be still and just know that you're God. And I just spent the next, I don't even know how long, just being really quiet, just meditating on who God was, sort of worshiping him in in silence, not getting distracted by the things around me, turning my cell phone off, not walking around the room pacing, just really resting, being still. And in that, I learned to listen to God's voice. I learned to listen. I learned what his voice sounds like. You know, if I called you on the phone and blocked caller ID because you come every single Tuesday and you hear my voice for an extended, I know, excruciating period of time. Um, if I called you on the phone and blocked my number, you would recognize my voice because you hear it so long for, and so often. You know my voice. You hear me and you just know my voice. In the same way, we need to learn, we need to practice Being still. Because God, I promise, does want to speak to you. He does want to speak to you. But you need to learn how to listen. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. He'd never heard God's voice before, and so he didn't know what it was like. He didn't know what God sounded like. Well, we'll continue reading. Verse 8. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Listen, again, as we're sort of juxtaposing these two men, Eli and Samuel, Eli, this incompetent and complacent old man, a very faithless and very much a failure of a leader of Israel with Samuel, this young man, uh, sort of the up and coming guy. As we're comparing and contrasting the two, understand, listen, Samuel was ignorant to God's call. He was ignorant to God's call. But Eli was desensitized to God's call. Here he is, the great high priest over Israel, supposed to be receiving revelation from God, supposed to be uh, proclaiming that revelation to the children of Israel. And it takes him three times to get that God's trying to talk to Samuel. He was completely desensitized to God's voice. It was completely desensitized to the things of God. Listen, Christians, as leaders, it's so important for you never to become desensitized to God's will for your life and God's will for your organization, your ministry, your team, your group. It's important to never become desensitized to God's word and God's will for you and for your team always be seeking His face, always be paying close attention to the direction that He would have you go. And Christians, it, just in our own individual lives, it's so important for us to never become desensitized to God's voice. Ignorance is fixable. Desensitation, it's not. Once something's scarred over, that scar tissue, there's no getting rid of it, Right? Ignorance is easy to fix, but being desensitized is not. Listen, Christian, never become desensitized to God's voice. Never become desensitized to God's will. So Samuel does what Eli says. He goes and he lays down and he listens. And verse 10, the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. That is to say, I'm going to do something. Have you ever heard something that was so shocking and so terrifying that it left you speechless and your lips just kind of like quivered? Like you were just so like shocked by what was just told to you. That, that's what God's saying here. I'm going to do something, I'm about to do something that's so shocking, that's so incredible, that's so radical, that everyone who hears it is going to not know what to say. They're going to have nothing to say when they hear what I'm about to do. In other words, Samuel, this is serious, pay close attention, okay? This is, this is big, okay? Sorry. Verse 12, on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. You remember in chapter two, verses 27 through 36 that God pronounced a curse on the house of Eli. Uh, You can go back and read that. That's what God's talking about. God's saying, everything that I said I'm gonna do, I'm about to do. I'm about to make it rain, okay? It's about to come down. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. In other words, God is saying to Eli, to Hophni, and Phinehas, you're toast. You're done for. No sacrifice could ever atone for what you've done. No sacrifice could ever atone for the wickedness that you have done. This is talked about, I believe, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27. It says that if anyone continues sinning deliberately, there no longer remains for him a sacrifice for sin, but only fearful expectation of judgment. If anyone continues to sin deliberately knowing full well that what he's doing is wrong and not caring, there no longer remains sacrifice for that person, but only fearful expectation of judgment. That's essentially what God is saying to Eli and to Hophni and Phinehas through Samuel. There's nothing, there is no sacrifice that you could ever give that would atone for what you've done, because what you've done is so Painous and so wicked and so perverse and so blasphemous that there's no sacrifice that, that could ever forgive it. This could have been fixed. They could have never been at this place if only Eli had exercised a little discipline. If only Eli had exercised a little discipline. Listen, as Christians, as leaders, it's important for us to be able to exercise discipline. It's important for us to be able to exercise discipline. Why? Because we need to correct what's going on in people's lives who are under us. This is especially true in regards to the church. Oh, that we had a little bit more church discipline going on. Oh, that we had a little bit more taking care of people doing foolish and really damaging things in the church. If only we had a little bit more correction for that. Tyler, how can you say that? You you don't want to be legalistic. No, I'm, I'm not talking about legalism. And I would never advocate legalism. I'm not talking about coming down on people and judging them for for messing up or slipping up. We're all human. We all make mistakes. The church is full of sinners, okay? That's okay. I'm not asking for a perfect church. I'm not looking for a perfect church. It's been said that if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. I'm not looking for a perfect church, and I'm not looking for perfect people serving in the church, and perfect people leading the church, because there's no such thing as a perfect person, and so there's no such thing as a perfect church. I'm not not crying out for legalism, and I'm not crying out for pretending like we're perfect. I'm not crying out for people to put on masks and pretend like they've got everything together. That's a whole other set of problems that we have in the church. It's people pretending like they're perfect. But oh, that we had a little more church discipline. Why? Because church discipline here in this time would have saved Hophni and Phinehas and Eli's life and their souls. Understand the gravity of what God is saying here. Forever, for eternity, there is no sacrifice that can atone for what you've done, including the sacrifice of Christ. That's not to say that Jesus' blood can't cover certain sins. But as Hebrews 10 well illustrates, if anyone goes on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains for them a sacrifice for sin. Listen, church discipline would have saved not only their lives temporally, but their souls for eternity. And Christian, here today, When one day you are in a place of of church leadership, when you are one day, hopefully even today, submitting to church leadership, never despise discipline. Never despise discipline. I remember um, there's been a couple of occasions now where I've had to do it. I work at Harvest in the high school ministry, and there's been a few occasions where I've had to sit someone down uh, from... From volunteering in the ministry, from being a leader in the ministry. And it's a really tough thing. It's probably my least favorite thing to do in ministry, hands down. But I remember the first time I had to do it, um, I I apologized for it. I said, I'm really sorry that I have to do this, but... And the pastor over me at the time, uh, Pastor Steve Wilburn, rebuked me for that. And he said, don't ever apologize for discipline. Don't ever apologize for discipline. What you're doing needs to be done. Needs to be done before God and for this person's well-being. Never apologize for discipline. And I took that rebuke close to heart. Close to heart that I would never despise disciplining someone in love, and I would never despise someone disciplining me in love. Why? Because it's necessary. It's necessary. Not only before God, not only does God require it, but they require it in their life. They need it. They desperately need that discipline. They desperately need that correction. Listen, family, don't despise discipline. Whether you're having to dish it out or receive it, Never despise it. Never hate discipline. Never avoid discipline. Always do it in love. Always. But never despise it. Never not tell someone the truth when it's tough. Church discipline is so crucial because it would have saved their very lives. But Eli neglected Discipline. He despised discipline. And as a result, not only would his sons be condemned to death and eternity separated from God, because they continually, willingly, knowingly blasphemed God by turning his house into a whorehouse. Okay? Not only would they be condemned to an eternity separated from him, presumably in hell. That's what the text is saying here. But so would Eli, is what God is saying to Samuel. If Eli had only loved discipline, loved correction, loved rebuke, he would never be in this place. Verse 15, Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord And Samuel is afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Here we have Samuel laying awake the entire rest of the night. I would too, okay? If you told me that my sort of adopted father figure um, and the priest of Israel, okay, the great high priest over all of Israel and his two sons, um, if God came and told me that that he was going to kill him and send him to hell, Uh, I don't think I'd sleep that night either. That was the first time God spoke to me. Like, I I don't think I'd sleep either. I think I'd be pretty wide awake. And that's what we find Samuel doing. It says that he lay there until morning. Um, It doesn't say that he quickly drifted back off to sleep. No, he laid there until the morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever had God tell you to do something and you've been afraid to do it? Have you ever been called to do something and you've just been afraid to carry it out? I I definitely have. There's been a lot of times where I've been afraid to do what I know I needed to do. One time in particular, um, there was... He was a good friend of mine, but he was someone that I was discipling. He lives up in Santa Barbara, and uh, he had gotten his girlfriend pregnant, um, and she was a Mormon. And I told him, Hobie, two wrongs don't make a right, okay? You you cannot marry this girl uh, because God's clear in his word that you cannot be unevenly yoked. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. You can't be unequally yoked with a non-believer. Hobie, I'm sorry, you can't marry this girl. I know that that's the easy thing to do. Um, Well, I mean, pardon me, it's not easy, but that's the the logical thing in your mind to do uh, at this point, especially to save face. But listen, you, you can't do that. And I dreaded having that conversation with him. I dreaded driving up to Santa Barbara the entire two and a half hours it took me to get there. The entire time, I was so agonizing over this discussion that I was going to have with him because I knew what his response was going to be. It was going to be, you know what, stick it. (laughs) And I knew that if that was the response, if, if that was going to be what was going to happen, that I couldn't walk with him anymore through life. I, I can't disciple someone who's willingly living in disobedience to God. I, I mean, it's, it's sort of contrary. I knew that if he made that decision, that it would mean that I would not be able to really be in his life in the same way that I was. And the entire way driving up, I was dreading having the conversation that I was going to have to have. I was afraid to do it. I was afraid to say what I knew that I had to. Listen, it's easy to be afraid. It's understandable to be afraid. But listen, Christian, if, if God has called you to do something, if God has called you to say something, if God has called you to go somewhere, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go boldly in him. Go boldly in him, knowing that he has sent you. He's the one telling you to do it. He's the one who's given you the vision, Samuel. Don't be afraid. Eli comes up to him. And he says, Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. Oh, what painful words to hear in that moment. Why did he have to call me son now? And Eli said, Here I am. I love that because... This is now the fifth time uh, in this chapter that Eli said, here I am, For the fourth time to Samuel. Pardon me, to Eli. This is the fourth time, Eli's, fourth time Samuel said this. Once to God, four times to Eli. Gosh, I'm a wreck. I'm sorry. I always do that. I always flip names here and there. I think the funniest was uh, the time that I said that Moses uh, put all the animals in the ark. My bad. Um, This is the fifth time, fifth time that Samuel has said, Here I am, the fourth time uh, to Eli. I love that. He's like a rock, he just always has the same answer. He just always has the, the same thing to say, even in the midst of just really painful circumstances. He's, he doesn't want to have to tell Eli uh, what God told him, um, but we don't have him hiding, right? He's not running and hiding like Adam. Uh, when God comes down through the garden and calls Adam, and Adam's like hiding in a bush, right? That, that's not what we find Samuel doing. Eli cries out to God. <sighs> Sorry, I just keep doing it. Eli cries out, calls out for Samuel, and Samuel responds, here I am. Verse 17, Eli says, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do also to you and more if you hide anything from me that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him, and he said, it is the Lord Let him do what seems good to him. I love what Eli says there in the end. It's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. If only Eli had this attitude toward discipline, just a few, maybe a few months ago, a couple years ago, when Hophni and Phinehas were little kids running around causing a bunch of trouble, it's always pastor's kids that cause all the trouble. I'm just saying that as a joke because there's a pastor's kid in the corner. I'm just screwing with him. <laughs> just kidding. But as Eli's sons are running around causing a bunch of trouble, if only he loved discipline them, loved discipline then like he does now, maybe they wouldn't be in this place. But I guess better late than never, Samuel responds, it's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Listen, Christian, here today, no matter what comes your way, that either you have to be disciplined or you have to exercise discipline on someone as being in a place of leadership, understand that it comes from God. It comes from the Lord, okay? it's, It's not like some arbitrary thing's happening to you. It's not like you're being persecuted for doing nothing wrong, okay? It comes from the Lord. It's the Lord's... Eli says, let him do what seems good to him. Such a beautiful response uh, from such a, frankly, ugly leader. It's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Verse 19, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of the words fall to the ground, or let none of his words fall to the ground. Verse 20, and all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So now not only does Eli the priest recognize that Samuel is a prophet of God, but all of Israel recognizes that Samuel is the mouthpiece of God to them, the leader of Israel. Read with me. Verse 1 and verse 21, Now the Lord. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Beautiful full circle that happens. Such a contrast between the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter. This is Samuel's sort of coming of age, becoming a man, first understanding the word of God, first getting to know who God is and what God's word looks like. And here and now for the rest of his life, Samuel would become a man after God's word. He would be a man passionate in listening to and receiving God's word, a man passionate in obeying God's word, and a man passionate in communicating God's word. Listen, Christian, wherever you're at, be someone who brings light to a dark place. Be someone who brings God's word to a place where it isn't. In the land of Israel in this time, the word of the Lord was rare. But because of Samuel's love for God's word, for his obedience to God's word, and his willingness to speak God's word, the Lord appears again at Shiloh. God's in that place once more. Listen, Christian, if you're going to be a godly leader in whatever circle you're in, be someone who brings God's word. Be a man, a woman, a leader after God's word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that, that your word would go out, it would convict our lives. This study's yours. And uh, there's nothing that I could ever do uh, from this mic that would cause people to want to come and be here. But if your word goes out, it will not return to you without first accomplishing the purpose you've set it forth for. And so God, I pray that you would teach me to be a man like Samuel after your word a man who loves your word, who loves hearing it, who's attentive to it, who's obedient to it, and who loves to communicate it. Help us all to be leaders in whatever circle we're in who love your word. In your precious son's name we pray, amen the Lord bless and keep each one of you this week. May God cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace.